Thank you, so it's a Merry Christmas again. It's a wonderful, wonderful time of year. Glad to uh, feel very honored that I uh, get to be uh, the, the uh, get to bring God's word uh, for our church family this morning. Uh, would you uh, just join me in prayer before we start? Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you and ask that we might have uh, ears to hear what you have to say to us today. Give us soft hearts. Uh, I pray that we would have a ready spirit to uh, to obey uh, and to be your good servants in this life. Uh, use the th- your word as we consider it this today to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our message this morning starts with a story, a different one than the one I shared earlier, but a really important one. It's related. And the story begins actually before the throne of God in heaven. And God sent an angel named Gabriel to the town of Nazareth to a maiden whose name was Mary. Mary was engaged to a man named Joseph, who was a direct descendant of David, Israel's greatest king. So the angel went to Nazareth to, and, and appeared to Mary and greeted her, saying, Shalom. He said, Mary... God is very pleased with you. He is with you. Well, Mary was startled when she saw the angel. And she also was puzzled by by what he had said. The angel said, Mary, don't be afraid. God is very pleased with you. You are going to have a baby, a little boy. You are to give him the name Jesus. He is going to grow up to be a great man, the Messiah. And and people will call him the Son of God. God is going to place him on the throne of his ancestor David, and he will rule over the people of Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, when Mary heard this, she said, how is that possible? I'm not even married yet. And the angel said, Mary, God's word never fails. The Holy Spirit will touch your body with power. And that's how you are going to become pregnant. And that is why people are going to call the holy baby you bear God's son. And Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let the things you have said about me come true. Well, as the baby was growing in Mary's womb, she reflected on this amazing honor that she had received to be asked to be the mother of the Messiah. And she thought about the kingdom that her son would one day bring in this world, a kingdom that would be marked by justice and peace. And Mary composed a poem about this to express her feelings. And the poem has become one of the most celebrated pieces of Christian literature throughout the history of the church. This is Mary's poem. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has regarded the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants, even as he spoke to our fathers. It is from Luke chapter 1, and it also is the word of the Lord. Rich Kasky told me the other day that uh, he's going to be preaching on, on uh, Christmas Eve night at his home church in, in Pennsylvania. And he said, no matter what wise ideas I might have about texts to preach from on Christmas Eve, everybody wants to hear about shepherds and angels and the baby in the manger. <laughs> and he said, so that's what I'm preaching on. And Dave Gibson uh, uh, preached last Sunday on that text, which I shared with you this morning. And so I am freed to be a little bit, uh, to depart a little bit from that particular part of the Christmas story. Linda and I, several years ago, hosted a, a Christmas party at our home, uh, invited several people from our neighborhood, and also invited some international students that we uh, had become friends with at the University of Texas at Arlington. And these three international students all come from India, and they all were from a Hindu background. And I shared with them as part of our, our uh, Christmas party the story of, uh, of the birth of Jesus that was our text that, I, that I, I shared with you earlier. And as I was sharing it, this horrifying thought struck Linda and me at the same moment. And that is, if you don't know how Mary became pregnant, this story sounds a lot different than what, we, than what we know what it is. The Annunciation and the fact that, Je that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit with the Son of God makes all the difference in, in that story. And our Hindu friends, of course, didn't know that. <laughs> and so we had to fill in, quickly fill in the background uh, after I told the story to help them understand the import of this, uh, this great day when, when Jesus was born. You know, the incarnation, the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, that Mary bore the Son of God as her baby, is quite a controversial uh, notion. It's a notion that uh, our neighbors, our, our Islamic neighbors, would, uh, you know, are, are quite offended by. If you go to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, there are inscriptions written in Arabic all around the top of that dome. And, uh, and this, many of the, the, the inscriptions talk about Mary and Jesus. Among the things they say are that, that, that uh, God is one and there is no other, and his, it does not befit his majesty to take a son. Those words are actually written twice on the Dome of the Rock. One of the reasons that Muslims are so offended by this notion that Jesus is God's son is that for them, they think that we are implying that God had a sexual liaison with Mary that uh, uh, is similar to what happened in the ancient uh, Greek mythology where Zeus uh, had a dalliance with uh, a princess named Alcamene, and uh, Alcamene bore Hercules. Hercules was the son of Zeus by a, uh, by a mortal woman. And this is the kind of thing that the uh, Muslims imagine that we are talking about when we say that Jesus is the son of God. That's repellent to us. It's disgusting. It's disgusting to them, too. And they, they, it's, it's a colossal misunderstanding. Of, of, who, of who Jesus is and how he came to be in this world. Uh, tragic in so many ways that, that for 
centuries and centuries, 1,700 years, the, uh, the, the Muslim community has talked to one another in these terms and, and accused us of a, of a very different understanding of who Jesus is than, than who we actually would say that he is. Mary was likely a teenager uh, when, uh, when, when the angel Gabriel visited her. It's not, uh, doesn't say exactly the custom at that time would have meant that she was probably betrothed as a teenager. Uh, and uh, she was more than likely, uh, more than likely uh, uh, from a, a poor family. She was betrothed to a carpenter who was a uh, laborer, likely not to have been someone who was very, um, very wealthy himself. So the two great themes of this story of Mary and, uh, and, and Gabriel uh, are the, the messianic identity of her child, the fact that Jesus would, would be, the, her, uh, her son would be the one who would establish God's kingdom in this world, and especially in, uh, uh, beginning in Jerusalem and among the people of Israel. And then secondly, Mary's faith and courage. And that's what I'd like to reflect on a little bit before we, uh, uh, this morning as we think about her story in particular. Incredible, incredible faith that Mary, uh, uh, that Mary had in believing the angelic announcement that you are going to have a baby even though you're not yet married and you've not yet you know, had a sexual union, so to speak. The, uh, it's unprecedented, never in history had such a thing uh, occurred, uh, uh, there are other, other miracles in the Bible in the Old Testament, but never one like that. This is the very first time. And so uh, the angel uh, told this to Mary and she believed it. She asked, how is it possible? But she did believe him. She believed him right out of the gate. That's really remarkable. But not only that, she was tremendously courageous, wasn't she? She was, uh, she was willing to, uh, to embrace the future that God had with her, even though it was a future that, was, that she knew uh, right, out, right from the beginning was going to be one that was problematic, embarrassing, shameful. Uh, she, there were people who would assume that she had uh, had relations with someone else and, uh, before she was married to Joseph and that her child was, uh, was, go- was a, uh, an illegitimate child. Uh, she understood that that was, that was part of, this pr- uh, of, of the future that she was facing when she said, I am the Lord's servant. Let the things you have said about me come true. She's incredibly, uh, uh, you know, courageous. They, you know, there are, you know, people have cited the Old Testament uh, uh, verses about the uh, about uh, capital punishment for women who uh, uh, who committed adultery, and this would have been considered an adulterous uh, act if she had, in fact, uh, had. Uh, uh, relations with a man prior to uh, after being betrothed to, to Joseph, uh, that would have been uh, ex- expected. That uh, that it would have been a uh, a capital offense, so to speak. Uh, it's unclear at this time in Israel under Roman domination if if the community would have been empowered to do that. But in any case, uh, the, the, uh, the shame and the social consequences are staggering for, for Mary. Uh, so her embrace of this is, is truly admirable. Uh, I was talking to a 
professor at Dallas Seminary about this uh, a few years ago, and he commented that when uh, we read the story about uh, about Mary and Je that there was no room in the inn, which is that's the that's the phrase that we all remember about uh, them going to Bethlehem, that that may not have meant that the Holiday Inn was full. It, it, he said that it's more, more likely that this meant that there was no house in Bethlehem where they could stay. And that's very interesting because Joseph was returning to Bethlehem. Probably he owned property there. Probably that was the reason why he had to go and be registered there to be taxed. And so he had relatives there. And it's almost unimaginable uh, in, in these contexts that, that, you, that Joseph could have gone to his hometown where he had family and no one would take him in if it wasn't for the shame of having a, uh, a bride who was pregnant with someone else's child. So probably, probably that shame of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, the social shame of being interpreted as carrying someone else's child uh, uh, was, was part of that Christmas story right from the very beginning and uh, something that Mary experienced. And yet even so, she was willing to say, I am the Lord's servant. I am embracing this. This is what you have for me and I will be your good servant, God, in being the mother of the Messiah. She was an unlikely hero. She was not someone that you would have expected to be the hero of a story. You know, Jewish attitudes towards women at this time are, were pretty uh, caustic. Uh, rabbis used to, with regularity, thank God that they were not born female. Uh, they, uh, you know, women were had very well-defined, restricted spheres that they could uh, uh, of life, and they were not respected in the uh, in the Jewish household of that time. The Greek attitudes, Luke came from, uh, uh, the writer of the, of the gospel story was a Greek man, and he also came from a, a, a culture and a context where women had very, had very few rights and were, uh, were, were not looked upon with, <clears throat> with, uh, as, as people with, uh, to be admired or emulated. And so this story stands out. When you read stories about women in scripture, you need to read them with the, uh, in, through the lens of uh, a, a, a cultural context at the time where women were, uh, were, were not respected, not, uh, uh, not valued, except for uh, uh, doing household duties and, and procreating. Uh, they, were, uh, they were not expected to be people of, uh, uh, of leadership, people, people who, uh, who were honorable, who were wise. They, those were not, re women were not regarded in that way in the ancient times. And so when Jesus, when the apostles interact with women, when you see women in positions of influence in the, in, in the Bible, that shouts. Even if, even if, if, if in our modern context that doesn't look very significant, in the ancient context, that it was staggeringly significant. So it's very, very important as, as we think about, uh, think about Mary and think about how to, what, what kinds of things we would apply to our lives about, about Mary. Uh, we need to remember that, that this special privilege that was given to her is extraordinary. And her faith response that Luke records here is also very extraordinary. 
There are a couple of things, and this is just at the at the at the uh, at the beginning of our message, not at the end. A couple of things I want to I want to bring out here as applications specifically about Mary's story. First of all, men, we need to recognize that women have something to, to teach us. Our our complementarian understanding of, uh, of, of men and women as being created differently and having different roles and so forth. That's a scriptural understanding, but it can be overdone. It can be overstated to the point where men are deaf sometimes to the, uh, to, to the, the, the messages that women can give and teach us if we just would only listen. And so we'd like to urge you, uh, you men, to have ears to hear, not only your wives, but other women as well. They need to, you, we need to understand that God speaks to women as he speaks to men, and they, they can respond to his word in faith and wisdom, and we have things to learn from them. So I would urge us, as one of our, of our lessons as we that we take from Mary's story, is to remember that God has something, uh, uh, that, that God will, can use women, use young women to teach us, and that we need to be wise. We need to be, uh, uh, to, and have ears to hear as they, uh, uh, to hear them. I've told you the story about the Esther women in India a number of different times. I want to just uh, refresh your memory and, and expand on it a little bit. A number of years ago, we, uh, uh, the particular part of Wycliffe that Linda and I work in, the seed company, uh, launched a project where we would uh, uh, try to focus a scripture translation effort specifically on women. And we chose a partner in India to be our key partner in, in working with this. And the idea was that, that we would, uh, be, most of the women that we were going to work with were illiterate. And so they were not going to be writing, they could not easily write a translation like this. But what they could do is they could commit scripture to memory in their language and then share it orally with others. And so we got uh, the, the first project was to bring f uh, four women from six different language groups together, uh, 24 women altogether. And, and through a series of workshops over the course of about two years, they committed 40 different stories of scripture to memory, including the whole book of Ruth among them. And then they went out and shared the stories. They shared them in their family circle, but also went and shared them in, with other women. They, uh, they, they itinerated around and would visit villages uh, just for the opportunity to share the stories about Jesus with whoever might listen to them. They were incredibly courageous and they, they, they got a reputation among Hindus, they got a reputation that was very dangerous because they, they recognized that these women had something to say and there would be people sometimes who would stand at the edge of the village and say, you can't come in here and tell your stories. We don't want the Christian stories here. But others, other times they would be welcomed in. There would be uh, the story of a woman who, uh, who was welcomed into a home uh, with uh, a wife. There was a, there was a mother, there were her daughters, there were her sisters, and they all gathered together and the Esther uh, woman told stories from the life of Jesus to these women. And uh, as she was in the middle of her story set that she was sharing, the husband came back and said, and, and became very angry. He didn't beat her, but he did tell her to get out and don't come back. I don't want you to be telling the stories here. She left and went to other, uh, other households in the village to, sh to share the stories. About an hour or so later, uh, 
the, the woman from that first house came running out and she tracked her down and said, please come back. My husband's gone away. We want to hear the rest of the stories. <laughs> One of the things that was mentioned is that when we finished up this project uh, was, was that, that the Esther women had, had, had found a voice through this. Women who, who before were really not expected to have any role whatsoever in the life of, of the community, except for going and working in the fields, having babies, cleaning up at the house. All of a sudden, there were women who had spiritual, had a message. They had spiritual authority and power that was, that was remarkable. They would be asked to go and pray for people because when they, when they were sick. And they would share the scripture stories and pray for them. And God affirmed their, their faith in marvelous ways through this experience. Many people came to faith in Jesus and chose to be baptized as a result of the Esther women's ministries. Uh, even pastors' wives who were before expected to just sit quietly in the back of the congregation. They were, they were asked to come and stand in front and please share a story with us. The pastors would say, people would always murmur and kind of, uh, you know, you'd hear a, a, a murmuring in, in the congregation when they were preaching. But he said, whenever one of the Esther women come up and share the stories, everything got quiet. Everybody listened. There was no, there, it was, you, you, you could hear a pin drop. So those Esther women are among those, among those women, those courageous women around the world who, who have a message and that men need to hear as well as, as well as women. We all need to be listening. The other, the other application about Mary's story is that she was an unlikely hero and we need to ask ourselves, God, am I, are you asking me to be an unlikely hero today? Are you asking me to do something courageous and full of faith today, like, like Mary did? We'll be, I'll return to that in a little bit. The next thing I want to look at, and you can open if you, if you wish. I, I'm, I'm just going to be speaking, but if you want to follow along in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, the, uh, I'm also going to be looking at, at the uh, song, Mary's song, called the Magnificat, from the first words of, uh, 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 of the song in, in Latin. Uh, My soul magnifies the Lord, is how it starts. And that's the, uh, that's the, that's the first word in Latin, mag magnify or magnificat. A couple of different things to think about with regard to this, this incredible poem. I, I introduced it as one of the uh, most remarkable pieces of Christian literature, uh, when it's something that has been spoken about, spoken and, and expressed as a psalm of praise, uh, probably for 21 centuries. Only even in the first century, it was likely that this particular praise song was used in the church as a way of expressing uh, gratitude and, 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 and glory to God. And that's why Luke captures it here in Luke chapter 1. A couple of things to think about. First of all, I'd like for you to think about the, uh, the this topsy-turvy world that 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 Mary talks about in this. Uh, you know, this is a this is a theme that runs through all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and Mary draws on it in in verse fifty. She says, "His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. You know, 
those sentiments are inflammatory. They are incendiary. You know, there are places in this world where if someone said something like that, it would be a, you'd get a one-way ticket to a re-education camp or to prison. She was expressing uh, a, a sentiment about social justice, about rectifying the wrongs of this world, that it were very challenging even to her time, and she was willing to express them. She expressed it. I'm sure that whether she, because she was speaking in Aramaic and not in Greek, we don't know the exact, exact words, but the, these words that Luke records certainly are those that are associated and that, and that with Mary's participation undoubtedly were crafted to express, to, to capture what she had said to Elizabeth in that particular time. But absolutely incredible uh, notion. You know, there, in, when I was in in, uh, in high school in the 1970s, there was a you know there was there were theologians in Latin America who used, who were writing about justice and writing about these kinds of things about righting wrongs and people who were poor, God being concerned for the poor, and 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 angry with the wealthy who were keeping them from uh, from from uh, having a better life. And people cast this as liberation theology. That's the shorthand term. And uh, and and for uh, because it was in the context of the Cold War, this was framed as a a, a communist plot, something that that was coming from uh, you know from the Soviet Union and so forth. And some of the truth of what these theologians had to say about God's concern for poor people got totally lost in the political, in, in the political rhetoric. There is a whole lot that God has to say about, about people who are disadvantaged, people who are poor, people who are needy in this life. You know, the church is at its very, very best when we, when, when, when we are combined a, a call, a spiritual call for salvation and the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And along with that, a church that shows material compassion for those who are, uh, who, who are destitute, those who are poor, those who are needy in this life. The great revivals of history are marked with this. You think about the Great Awakening here in the United States. You think about the Methodist revival in the, in the United Kingdom uh, in, the, in the 1700s. These are the, are the times when the church was both a, had a powerful verbal message for, about, about the gospel, but it also had a powerful, tangible concern for the needy around them. You know, I think about Jesus when, when they, they opened up the roof and lowered that paralytic down in front of him. And the first thing he said was, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the second thing he did was he healed him. He did both of those things. He both had compassion on the man's physical need as well as seeing his spiritual need and bringing a powerful gospel message to him. There was, a, there was a reporter in London a number of years, a couple of years ago, that absolutely electrified the Christian community. He wrote a, an article, and, and he said, "I am not a Christian. I am not a believer, but I cannot deny that the most profound benefit and influence in sub-Saharan Africa over the history in the history of the world has been through Christians." 
has been through the has been through the presence of the church in those places. Uh, absolutely, uh, in, in, incredible statement by an unbeliever. If you've never read the book Fever, Fever, you ought to read it. It's a very interesting book. It's uh, it's a, uh, about the discovery and uh, of Lhasa fever in Nigeria in the 1960s. And again, it was written by a reporter who is not a believer, but he writes with such admiration. Of, uh, for the nurses and doctors, the Christian nurses and doctors who stayed in places where this fever, which was sort of the precursor for Ebola, uh, as this fever was breaking out, it was the missionary doctors and nurses who stayed and, and worked to try to figure out what was going on so that they could, they could find an antidote and, and find a way to heal people who were, uh, were suffering from that fever. So there's this long-standing pattern of benefit from the gospel. Very interesting, the, uh, the, there was a, a, an anthropologist named Robert Redfield that, uh, uh, th that wrote a book, uh, a, a study about a, a village in Mexico called Chan Cam. You can Google it and if you wanna, wanna read more about it. But he documents there, among other things, how people in that Mex Mexican village came to faith in Jesus uh, became, and, and started uh, a, a church, Bible church like ours, and they began to prosper economically more than their neighbors. Their husbands were not philandering, they were not gambling, they were not spending their money on, on alcohol, and as a result, they had more money for other things, like helping their kids in, in school, and, 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 and the, the Christian part of that community started to prosper more than the rest of the community, and it created some social tension at the time. But the, this is, a, is something that, 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 is, uh, that we see over and over again. The gospel has that kind of impact, but as Christians prosper, often they forget where they came from. And there, there is an, a, a, a distance that grows between Christians as they prosper and as they, as they begin to, to experience uh, uh, wealth and, uh, and, and be a better life, they forget. They forget where they came from. They forget what it was like uh, with the people who are, are far from them. And that's, that is something that's true for us. It is very true for each of us, true for, and true for Linda and me, for all of us, is that we struggle. We, we, yeah, everybody tends to want to hang out with people who are like them. That's our, our normal uh, modus operandi, our default setting is that we connect with people who are like us, like-minded people. We have fellowship with, with people who, who are like us. And, and the gospel especially, the gospel that we treasure, also is for people who aren't like us. It's for people who aren't like us and who desperately need that message. There's a common uh, saying that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Uh, probably true, probably true that that you know our congregation is uh, is racially a, uh, a, a, a homogenous, and there are black congregations that are racially homogenous. That's that is a norm. It's very hard to to overcome it. But what it means is that even though we can read in the scriptures. And you can't escape it. You can read almost any book of the Bible. And if you read it with an honest heart, you see God's compassion 
for people who are poor, who are oppressed, who are destitute. And yet we can live our lives, our whole lives, with very little contact with such people. That is just the, that, that is just our, uh, the, the, the way in which uh, human life works. Well, as we think about this, this about, about, about this incendiary prayer that, that is connected with all that, that God has, uh, has done and shown in terms of his heart for the poor, Mary expresses profound, gushing gratitude to God for the honor of being the, the, the mother of the Messiah. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Mary was profoundly grateful, profoundly grateful that she had the opportunity to be the mother of the Messiah, even though she, had, she accepted all of those hard things that were going to come, even though they were part of the package, she still was grateful. She was profoundly grateful for the privilege. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words in, in the first part of Romans, where he talks about his apostleship as a grace from God, a gracious gift. And you think about apostleship, Paul talks about it in other, in other parts of, uh, of his letters, where he talks about being shipwrecked and being flogged and being imprisoned. And he was ultimately martyred. And he had this crushing burden on his soul as he, uh, as he thought about what other people, uh, the, 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 the people who had come to faith and the challenges they were facing. It was a draining, draining call for him. And yet it was a grace from God. It was a gracious gift that Paul uh, had the opportunity to be uh, involved with, uh, with serving God in this world. I remember when, we, when I was translating Mark chapter 10, working with the Yahweh teams in, in Indonesia, and we, when we came to Mark 10 and we're translating the passage of the, uh, of the rich young ruler, and at the very end of that passage, there is a, uh, you know, you know uh, after the rich young ruler leaves and says, you, know, you know, Jesus has invited him to follow him in, in, in an apostolic discipleship kind of relationship. And the young man leaves. He doesn't, he does, he, it's too costly because he didn't want to leave all of his wealth. And Peter tells Jesus, he says, Lord, we are the ones who've left everything to follow you. And then Jesus tells him, he says, whoever leaves his home, his father and mother, brother and sister, Children and fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much in this life. Home, mothers, brothers, sisters, children's and fields. They will be persecuted, but in the end, they will, they will have eternal life. And as we were trying to write that out in Yahweh, I stopped the group and I looked at them and I said, you know, this is, this is really true. I can tell you that this is a true thing. This has happened to Nathan's mother and to me. When, when, when we left our home and left, left our families behind in America, and we came here to live with you, we left a lot of things behind, and it was very difficult. Uh, 
But when we came here, you have accepted us and we have received, uh, we, we have become your children. We have become your sisters and brothers. We have, uh, we have become parents to some of your children. He said, you, you are like family to us. You, you gave us a place where we could stay. We, but yeah, this is a true, this verse is true for us. And, uh, and, and, and it, it was an, a marvelous privilege. I, I said, you know, I, I, I could not say anything uh, about, about how precious it is for us to have had this chance to be with you. So let me come back to what, I, what, what, what we said after, uh, at, the, at the close of the story about Mary. Mary was an unlikely servant. And what would it cost us? What would it cost each of us to say, I am the Lord's servant in 2019. I will do what you ask of me. You know, as I said, it take, uh, it's very difficult. Uh, when Life on autopilot, life on cruise control, means that we are very unlikely to connect with anybody that's very different than us. The only way that will ever happen is if you, is if you take, make a decision that you're gonna do something that you're going to step into somebody else's world uh, that you normally would not interact with. It takes deliberate effort. It takes prioritized time. We are, we are, are crazy busy. I understand that. Every, every family is, is absolutely uh, you know, it, it is in overdrive, busy, rushing do, from thing to thing every day every evening. So the only way that it would ever, this will ever happen is if you choose, if you choose to stop something and do something else, to step into somebody's world that you would never ever otherwise step into. You know, one of the things that, that has meant so much to Linda and me in the last few years, uh, you know, as uh, we've, both Linda and I have, have been involved in mission work for our whole adult lives. And if you do that for your whole adult lives, what ends up happening as you enter into this stage of my stage of, of life is that many of the people who started out as your faithful supporters, and in our case, some of them for four decades, are now have moved into uh, uh, assisted living situations, limited incomes, and so forth. And so that, that where, where they once could generously give and, uh, uh, to support us, they can, they can do so no longer because they're in a different life situation. And what's remarkable that Linda and I have seen in the last few years is that some of their adult children have, have started to be our prayer partners and our supporters. And I, as I was reflecting on this, I said, There's a, wh why is this so important? Why is this? And it took me a while to kind of figure it out. The reason it was important is that it shows that those families were, when they sent their financial gift to us, it was more than just sending mom and dad sending a check in the mail. Those kids were reading our letters and they were praying around the table for us. And they caught the vision for what Linda and I were doing. And, they, and that's a part of them as well as a part of their parents. And so when they began to get enough income to make their own choices about how they wanted to invest it, they wanted to have a share in what Linda and I were doing too. That is an incredible testimony. It's an incredible testimony to us. We are, are, are 
totally, we were blown away as, we, as we've seen this again and again. Families doing ministry together. You know, kids benefit when families choose to do ministry together. When life doesn't just revolve around survival and then doing things for kids, but the family together says, we're going to do something for somebody else, someone that's not in our circle because they, because they have a need. Linda's sister used to, uh, in the, uh, when her kids were growing up, would, uh, they, they, would, they would usually on, I think it was on Thanksgiving morning, they would, they would, they would go to a soup kitchen in a, uh, in a neighboring community and serve Thanksgiving dinner to, uh, you know, to people who were needy. Uh, I was, was so admired them for being willing to do that. But now she, Linda's sister went, her husband went, all their kids went to be able to do this as a, uh, as a step of ministry to those who were in need. But I tell you, our natural paths won't take us there. If we just run, as I said, on autopilot, if we do just what we normally do, we will rarely, if ever, intersect with people who need us the most, who need that touch from Jesus the most. So I'm going to just urge you as we close to consider in 2019, choosing, choosing to do something to reach someone whom you normally wouldn't reach. I'm gonna give you several ideas. This is not an exhaustive list. These these are the first things that came to my mind, okay? The, you know, several over the years in our congregation have been involved with the Pregnancy Resource Center in in Grand Prairie. There's one here in Arlington as well. They, They appreciate volunteers. Mission Arlington is a, is a very, is a very powerful ministry. They also accept volunteers. The main thing that I would suggest on this is to do, take a baby step. Don't plan, don't, unless God calls you and you're clear about it, don't plan to do something every week uh, uh, right, right out of the gate. Just see if you can do something. See if you can do a little step that will touch somebody else that you normally wouldn't, uh, wouldn't touch. You know, there there are many homes in our community uh, for uh, you know for elderly people, and some of them are, are are some of the people who live in these homes never ever get visited, ever. You know, if they have loved ones, they live too far away, and so they just you know they are that's an incredibly lonely existence. You might consider making a trip, paying a visit, and seeing if you can't be a friend to somebody. Who, who has no friend. You could be a reader for somebody who's blind. When I was in college, uh, one of the things that my, I, uh, a, uh, a, a friend of mine did was to, was to be a reader. He would go and sit with someone, a student who was blind, and he would read in his textbooks so he could learn that way and continue to keep up with his studies. One thing Linda and I did, I mentioned, referred to it earlier, was hosting international students. This is a very interesting one because these students at UTA are graduate students. They are very busy. They are not looking for any, uh, for, for a long, uh, time-consuming engagement with, uh, with, a, with an American family. But they would love to have the opportunity to see the inside of an American home. The vast majority of international students who come to American universities never, ever see the inside of an American home. And they are, they are warmly open to hearing stories from Scripture, 
They will join our customs, the, the, the international students that we made friends with, the Hindu, the, the, the Hindu students came and joined us in church here a couple of different times. They, uh, they are very open, but they just need somebody who's willing to see them and, and give them a little bit of attention. I called the other day someone who, uh, who fosters children here in, in, in uh, Arlington. Uh, I, I admire so much uh, their ministry in opening their home. And they have brought children to stay long term in their home, needy children who are uh, otherwise, uh, uh, who come from very rough, broken backgrounds, who need to have a safe place to grow up. And they have, have, have brought two in, into their home. And one of the things that, that uh, my, my uh, friend Dal told me was he said, you know, the, the the opportunity for this kind of ministry isn't just for those who are going to open their home and can bring somebody in for the long term. There are what they call respite care, where you just have to be willing to take someone for a, for a day or two in order to give their regular foster care parents some space and some air, uh, a chance to go to a, uh, you know, to attend a family event or go somewhere else, take a vacation for a couple of days. Just the, you know, the, 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 the notion of respite care, where you're willing to just take somebody, take a, a needy child into your home for a couple of days is, it can be an incredible ministry, a ministry of Jesus love in people's lives. I could go on and on. There are lots of opportunities. And if you have an interest in some of those opportunities, please ask me and I will be happy to share more with you or put you in touch with people that I know. But I'd like to just close uh, before we pray with, uh, with uh, some, an, an incredible promise from, that Isaiah records, God's promise to the people of Israel. If they are willing to do what Mary did and say, I am the Lord's servant, I am willing to step out and, and bring, God's, uh, bring God's blessing to a needy person who otherwise won't hear it. Listen to what Isaiah records as the words of the Lord. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You will call and the Lord will answer. He will, you will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. What a promise for those who are willing to sacrifice for others, to step out and touch others. That's God's call for us in this Christmas season, is how can we be God's servant in, in 2019? To step out and bring his, the fragrance of Christ and the touch of his love 
to somebody who desperately needs it. That's, that's, that's our call today. That's what I would like for us to pray about and ask God to, uh, to, uh, uh, to show us his way. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you. And Lord, we all confess that we are both unworthy and unable to be your good servants. As, uh, as, as Mary uh, uh, called, uh, as, as Mary was and confessed, Lord, we, we quail, we shrink at the prospect in so many ways. God, would you help us to have faith through your Holy Spirit? Give us courage, give us the faith of Mary, and help us to step forward to be your servants and your fragrance. Lord, the reward in our souls will be great, and we anticipate that in Jesus' name. Amen.